This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Hello, FinTech Beat listeners. This is Amaya Scarity, a partner at QED Investors and back on the show to help Chris out. Today, we're talking about payments. For startups across the world, it's a helpful truism to understand that payments are the ultimate form of engagement. Whether it's e-commerce checkouts, subscriptions, or marketplaces, the last 30 years of the startup economy rely on the idea that you really can make payments over the internet. We've used this podcast to explore new forms of money, new forms of exchange. But so far, crypto hasn't displaced regular money in digital form just yet. The world of making and receiving payments is a fascinating, complicated beast. It's the most important attachment point for know your customer and financial inclusion, for fraud, and for customer service. As an investor in fintech companies, I'm continually surprised by how few people really understand the ins and outs of money movement. Our guest today has spent the last 18 months trying to change that. We're excited to have Sophia Goldberg, a veteran payments operator at Adyen, and now the author of a new book, The Field Guide to Global Payments. The book is designed to be an operator's introduction, a how-does-it-really-work intro for people who, like Sophia was once, are just getting started in the internet economy and trying to figure out how to get paid. Yo, I'm making short-term goals when the weather falls. Yes, put away the leathers and put ice on the gold. Chili with Starting with the elephant in the room, Sophia, welcome to the show. And help us understand, why is it that the most valuable fintechs in the world are payments companies? Yeah, uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. I think it really comes down to the fact that payments are the quote-unquote how of the global economy, Right. So it's not the only industry that's the physical mechanism of our globalized world, um, which is kind of the area I get nerdy about also into like freight and commodities and things like that. But it sits at the center of literally moving the funds. It's at the core. It's infrastructure, logistics, data which I think is where a ton of the value comes from. But building systems for billions of humans to buy from millions of merchants is a funnel problem. And those that act as these force multipliers do a really repeatable function with insane impact. And they know they can get their cut for it, from it. So from a revenue perspective, payments is just a beast of a company uh, strategy. And networks like the card networks really solve this coordination problem as well in a really phenomenal way of you know getting acquirers and issuers and millions of humans and companies to be able to interact, speak the same language, share money, cross borders, everything like that. And I think the other aspect is the flywheel of payments data, right? So whether it's for marketing and loyalty purposes, forecasting, you can tell a lot about an individual from what they buy. And it's part of the insane power that we see with Amazon in the US. Yeah, Sophia, it's, I mean, gosh, there's so much to unpack, right? I love where you started, which is 
the how of the global economy. And then also, how many times have we heard the phrase, big data, data is the new oil, but all of that ultimately comes down to somebody paying somebody. So exactly. let's, let's ask this question. Are payments companies getting paid too much or too little, given how important they are? I mean, there's the like the theoretical answer, which is people pay what they think it's worth and people are paying it. Um, <laughs> um, and, and a lot of these these, you know, economic models are super entrenched. But I think it's it's kind of a hard thing to fight back against at the end of the day. We see a lot of startups in the world taking on the economics of payments. You know, how can we make things cheaper at scale? How can we cut out some of the inefficiencies of which there are many? And I, I think we'll talk about it in a little bit. But, you know, Forex and currency conversion is a part of one of the silent killers of revenue for, for payments companies. So, you know, I, I had a, a tweet thread that was a little spicy maybe six months ago that like, I think the 30% app store fee is actually pretty fair if you break down the economics of how a credit card transaction works. The spicy defense of Apple. That's, that's got to be <laughs> rare for, for any startup founder or operator. Yeah, but but if you look at, you know, the average transaction size in the app store and the fixed fees of payments, especially like if it's a 99 cent or I think it's sub two dollars is the average app store purchase. And you've got, you know, anywhere from 20 to 50 cents fixed fees from the networks and processors on every transaction that hits card rails like that. 30 percent makes sense, makes sense from a where things are today does not make sense from a like pure logic of how payments should work, though. Yeah. Well, and I guess this is part of the allure of how payments should work is such a big draw. And that comes back to sort of your experience as a payments operator. Payments companies are the dominant success story in fintech, even after the, the market sell-off that we're all living through. Do you think that the winners have already emerged or are there big opportunities for new payments companies? I think there's a huge amount of opportunity, right? Humble aside, I have recently founded a payments company as well. <laughs> um, I think and we're not we're not ready to talk about that, right, Sophia? No, we're still in. So stay still. tuned. Stay yeah, tuned. stay tuned. Maybe I'll be allowed back on to talk about it. You know, sometime early next year. But I think there's a huge amount of opportunity. Everything from I think we're still in early innings of verticalized plays. Um, I think we're going to see this. You know, the last decade of payments has been very one size fits all. Like Stripe has really won with startups, um, especially in the US, Adyen's done really well at globalized enterprise merchants. Klarna's done and Affirm and the other BNPLs have done really well for, you know, semi-luxury retail purchases, especially with like Gen Z millennials. So I think we're going to see more fragmentation of use case specific payments. And I think there's going to be a lot of attempts and a few winners, but I think those are going to be huge businesses. You've been working in payments for years, but take us back to the early days of being a person with a job, and that job was to do payments. What was the most surprising thing when you got into payments? Part of the reason why I decided to get into payments was seeing the tip of the iceberg of how much breadth there is, of how many payment systems there are, how different things are in different countries. But you know, to put it in more specifics, I got to know uh, the Brazil payments market a lot in my first year at Adyen. Um, I started on the account management team. I had a few of our largest global merchants as uh, clients that I managed. 
And we did a lot of Brazil acquiring volume for them. And Adian has a phenomenal team in Brazil, phenomenal product in Brazil. Uh, and so I was able to go and visit and learn more about the market. Um, and I learned about the 30-day settlement timeline in Brazil. Um, so a settlement delay is how long it takes from the user paying for something to the merchant getting the money. In the US, it's like one to five days. In Brazil, it's 30 days. And that's insane, right? But the banks also have a huge money-making product off of it called advancements or acceleration, which then you're like, ah, I see why they keep some of these inefficiencies because they can charge an interest rate for merchants to get this cash quicker. Um, and that for me was just such a wild head scratcher of it, it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck in terms of it's a card payment in the US, it's a card payment in Brazil, but how funds actually move, how merchants get paid, completely different, huge timeline, which has like huge butterfly effects into the economy. Yeah, and it's certainly as an investor at QED, we've done a lot of investments in Brazil. And to your point, the fact that there's a 30-day lag between initiation of payment and settlement of payment creates just wild economic opportunities for different business models. So, Sophia, this takes us to the moment and the reasons that you decided to write the book, The Field Guide to Global Payments. And I want to ask you... Just take us to that moment of deciding to write this book, and then what was the process like to research and execute to be a first-time author? Yeah, I, I call it my my Jackson Pollock moment, where you look at one of his paintings and you go like, oh, I could paint that for my house. And like, realistically, you cannot, but it looks doable. And I think that for me, looking at the payments texts that were out there, I was like, well, I've spent this time going deep. I'm a huge nerd. Adian was full of like a ton of expertise that I just mined. Um, same with, you know, merchants, folks I met in the industry. And so pretty early on, I took on just like helping train new hires, built out two different global training programs while I was at Adian, joined the board of Payments Ed, the Payments Education Forum, and realized like, oh, I really like explaining payments. Like it's, I like to say it's hard, but not inexplicably so, right? Like these are big concepts, but you can break them down in a really accessible way. And it was middle of the pandemic. So it was, I think, end of December 2020. And I reread payment systems in the US. And I was like, I wouldn't have explained that that way. I don't think that's quite correct. Um, this is all US centric. Hell, I can do that. And I, at the time, it was like also heyday of Substacks, And everyone was like creating a blog and I'd like done little travel blogs in like undergrad and I did not love the experience of having to continually create content. And so I thought a book is like so much easier than a blog. <laughs> said, said for the first time ever. <laughs> which um, turned out not to be true, especially deciding to self-publish, which again, I thought would be fairly easy. And it turns out I now have all this knowledge I hopefully will never use again. But I started, you know, writing out what I would have wanted in the book. I started talking to friends who ran payments teams at large companies. I started talking to friends who were team leads at Adyen and other payments companies. I chatted with some investors who would ask me questions about payments as a payments nerd and, and semi-expert. Calling myself a payments expert feels a bit silly. Is anyone a payments expert? That's the real question we'll get to later. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> And and I think that's where a lot of the money comes from. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I just sat down and I remember first weekend deciding to write it. And 
I turned on Dictate on my iPad and gave one of the conference talks I'd given on subscriptions a few months before. And it was like 10,000 words. I was like, yeah, I could like keep this going and stretch it. Yeah. And so it took a long time to write. I think that's what I wasn't really prepared for was that like so many things in my professional life, like you sit down and you do your tasks and you execute and you get something done. And writing is like much more of an emotional experience of there'd be like a month and a half where I didn't touch the draft. And I felt so about that. Wait, Sophia. So, you know, writing a book takes a long time. Was that an emotional process for you? Was it easy as pie? It just came flowing like Jack Kerouac? What what was it like? Yeah, I'd say the first weekend was like flowing and great and high confidence. And then the next year was rough. I purposefully told a lot of people I was writing a book kind of to make sure it got done. And Tie so, yourself to the mast. Exactly. And so then like every week or sometimes month plus that would go by with zero work on it um, was a bit of a mind mind game of like, oh, crap, I haven't looked at this. I haven't done anything. People are like excited for this book. And I have no clue when I'm going to be able to sit down and write. And when I would sit down and write, it would flow really quickly but then I would just kind of burn out on writing anything. And especially near the end, that got true because I saved the areas where I knew the least for last. And so then it was, oh, I've got to spend like a week and a half just getting really deep in like the Chinese wallet ecosystem and the history of it. And, you know, and then I'd be reminded, oh, but I love doing this kind of research. I don't know why I put this off. I'm having so much fun. And so it, it was long, but I also wanted to say I could, I wrote it in a year. So I finished it December 28th, 2021. <laughs> Congratulations. And, and I will say a lot of business books are really one blog post and then 200 pages of examples. And this book really is not that. This is a book, as you say, it is a field guide. So every chapter, every page has new content. It's not just you know a single insight and then a dozen examples of how that insight has played out. It sounded like that's the book you wanted to write. Tell us more about why that was necessary. I think the reason it comes off that way is I haven't read many business books. I know that's a faux pas for a, a tech person. I don't, I don't read business there. books either. So there you go. <laughs> and so I think I didn't really have a model to go off of from, from that perspective. I didn't have, you know, this, this way it should be done in my mind. I think it was really like, these are the common questions. These are the areas. And then. I literally had sticky notes all over uh, my kitchen wall of like the different topics and chapters and playing around with what order should they go in. Um, I very quickly realized I wanted an applied payments section where I could talk about subscriptions, marketplaces, and B2B because there's, you know, payments in the abstract, payments in the consumer landscape perspective of how it works, how the funds move. But there's also all of these businesses that have to think about payments in a slightly different way. It's not just consumer pays, I get the money. Yeah. And I thought that you, you mentioned earlier about researching the Chinese wallet system. And I just thought that was a great experience to read for me, because I think we in the US, even those of us who think a lot about payments, we sort of have this heuristic of like, oh, in China, they do it differently. And oh, Alipay and oh, WeChat Pay. But you actually really outline what these systems are and how do they work. Give our listeners a sense of why are the systems the way they are and should we try to have them here or is it just impossible? 
Yeah, uh, two big questions. I think one on on how the systems are. So for for context in China, you know, there are card payments. China Union pays a, a big local network there, um, but really the majority of payments and online payments and are and now even in store payments are Alipay and WeChat Pay, and right, we do look at it from the U.S. perspective, like, wow, this is so different. I like to argue Alipay is actually really similar to the eBay PayPal story. Mm. And I think that helps um, understand kind of the the growth, the utility, the need for it. So eBay, you know, really grew alongside PayPal with this need for secure payments online. Alipay was created by Alibaba, um, right? The largest online marketplace as a way to escrow funds, have trust of payments for users, everything like that. So it immediately had this like product market fit of um, huge utility, huge need in the market. Um, and I think we see this in a lot of countries that, you know, the duopoly of Visa MasterCard wasn't really there, wasn't, yeah, entrenched. And so economies were able to hop, skip, a jump over it, whether that's through regulation with like a UPI or PICS in Brazil, or with like, you know, quote unquote, private sector, because it's China, but Alipay, WeChat Pay. It helps explain two things. One, the one time I've ever used a QR code for payment was by printing it out from PayPal when my daughter was doing a lemonade stand. So I, I think we should do more QR code payments in the US. But it also highlights a point that I think sometimes people gloss over without thinking about what it means, which is that payments are networks, right? We talk about the networks all the time, but we don't necessarily appreciate just the extent to which a strong payments company has network effects. And so the Chinese stories really articulate how these very powerful network effect businesses naturally grew to include payments. Totally, right? And WeChat Pay is the example of the network first with users of WeChat, which think of it as the iMessage or, or uh, WhatsApp of, of China. Um, but they, you know, flew into payments. Um, and with, you know, these in at Chinese New Year, allowing people to send money to friends and family, the red envelopes are Hongbao. And they went from in 2014, like, a, a, I think, hundreds of millions to by 2017, 46 billion cents peer-to-peer during Chinese New Year. And so just like the scale, once you already have this network, if you can get the payments angle there, like the effects are just wild. As we wrap uh, wrap up, bring some of those lessons to the US. So I want to go a little nerdy here, which is you describe WeChat Pay and Alipay as account-to-account transactions. Tell us more about what is an account-to-account transaction and do we have those in the U.S. or should we have those in the U.S.? Yeah. So this is one of those like the the same words mean a thousand different things. So A to A or account to account can sometimes look like online banking or, or ACH or something like that, or hopefully RTP sometime soon in the U.S. And Sophia, say what RTP is. Real-time payments. But the hack for that is these closed loop ecosystems. So Alipay and WeChat Pay are closed loop. In the US, we have two very large closed loop ecosystems, which are Venmo and Cash App. Um, mm-hmm. And so all these peer to peer, at the end of the day, how do you have fast movement of funds and um, and low fees? You need a core ledger and one company owning that ledger. Crypto is a, you know, I say ledger, people go, oh, crypto, which is probably you know, we don't have a ton of time for today. But I think we do have a lot of room in the US to move to more of these payment types. Um, and, and hopefully, we'll see more of that soon. 
Well, and ultimately, I, I often help people understand payments and settlement by just reminding folks that eventually every payment is just a bookkeeping entry on some bank's balance sheet. It can be you know, a local bank. If you are paying, making a local payment, it can go all up to the Federal Reserve. That's why it's called the central bank. Or as you point out with Venmo or Cash App, it can be inside of an ecosystem. But ultimately, every payment is settled by just someone writing down the money that used to belong to Sophia now belongs to Amias. And, and it is at some mystical level just that simple. Yeah. And that's how cross-border payments at scale work with correspondent banking, which I'm not going to do justice verbally on. So definitely check out that section of the book. But like, it's crazy. When I send money to you at your bank, at your different bank in another country, it doesn't actually like get put on a plane and mailed to that bank and put in your bank account. It's like mirrored double entry accounting that happens. Yeah. So as we close, this is a podcast where a lot of policymakers um, listen. So are there some lessons globally that you think policymakers should really be pushing for or thinking about in terms of wringing out some of those inefficiencies that you mentioned in the U.S. payment system? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So I, I think helping us get to a place where we have real-time payments in the U.S. and something that parallels either, you know, UPI in India or something like that would be huge, right? We have like the private versions of that with Cash App and Venmo, but I would love to see, you know, an advent like that in the U.S., and say more just for our listeners' benefit. So UPI is a government-sponsored payment network, and it's really free, right? How does UPI work in India? Yeah, so UPI was created by by the government in India, um, partly as a push to demonetization and getting small bills off the streets, partially to be able to tax people better. Um, <laughs> and Tax compliance ends up being a, a really powerful force in the history of policy and payments, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and so, you know, it allows anyone to send payments to anyone and that anyone can be an individual that can be an entity. You can link multiple wallets and payment t- types to it. So you can link multiple bank accounts. You could link your like, you know, private wallets that you might have. And, you know, it really is just this level playing field and network, but created in modern times, right? Even the networks are, you know, decades old. The banking rails in the US are you know, more than decades old. And so it's this modernized way for online commerce, for mobile commerce um, that, you know, is, is also like very democratized, And I mean that in the sense of it's really hard in digital payments to make sure those who don't have bank accounts or credit cards can participate in online economies. And something like that can really help. Yeah, open up a huge amount of innovation. And we've seen this not just in India, but Brazil has recently had a big success story with the PIC system, which you mentioned earlier. So final question, Sophia, a lot of your book is not just about payments for fintech people or payments for payments people, though it is that. But it also is about payments for people in the economy, for merchants, for people who want to sell online. So are there a couple of pieces of advice that you would give to a small business or even a medium-sized business? How much of this payments detail do they need to know in order to optimize their costs? Or should they just accept that the payments innovation ecosystem is going to constantly get better and constantly drive down costs and they can ride those rails as they go? So I think that really comes down to business case on a merchant by merchant basis. Do they have someone that can look at payments? Because there's huge economic benefits for them if they can get slightly better authorization rates. That's real revenue. And for the largest merchants, 
winning basis points of uplift on the margins can be millions and millions in revenue a year. But for smaller merchants, that's not going to be the impact. They're going to have to pay someone full time to look at it. I think, you know, we are at a place where a lot of the PSPs are, you know, very digitally native, do a very good job where outsourcing it makes a lot of sense. Having multiple payment partners makes sense at scale, but I think there's you know, the diminishing returns don't make a lot of sense for smaller companies. Um, I think the main takeaway is go with a partner that you can trust and that you can learn from. And if you need turnkey, they offer turnkey. If you want to own more of it, they allow you to own more of it. Um, but I think really the flexibility, and this comes to like the one size doesn't fit all and why we'll see, you know, more verticalized plays and things like that is payments is really hard. There's not that many of us who are like deeply care and nerdy about payments and work in the industry. And I think that's also the opportunity of the industry is like, how can we provide really great uh, payments experiences to merchants without them having to do all of this work? without having to become payments experts. Well, Sophia, the book is great. We'll encourage everyone to buy it. And thank you so much for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Payments is certainly complicated. And Sophia was open about how much emotional energy it takes to bring a book into the world. But my big takeaway is how much fun Sophia is having as an explainer, a researcher, and though she isn't ready to publicize it yet, an entrepreneur. I love the explanation that payments is the how of the global economy, regardless of industry. And Sophia made clear some things that many of us take for granted, how different payments are from country to country, how all payment systems and payments businesses benefit from network effects. And lastly, how much opportunity there still is for innovation to continue to make business easier in the U.S. and across the world. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.